Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Hallelujah. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the entrance of your word brings light. And today we ask for light revelation that will empower us, O oh God, to be overcomers in this life uh, as we press into every promise that you have made concerning us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. If you want a title for today's message, uh, it is a recce mission gone bad. A recce mission gone bad. And um, one or two people might wonder, what's that word recce? It's actually some sort of abbreviation for the word reconnaissance. And what is that word reconnaissance? Basically just uh, going out into an area to literally spy out the land to familiarize yourself with the land, gather information and knowledge concerning the land, in this case the land, but it could be anything uh, where you, you, you do what is called a recce mission. It's a term that is used a lot in the military, uh, recce mission uh, for reconnaissance mission. And that's really what we're going to talk about, a recce mission that simply went bad. If you turn in your Bibles to Numbers, the 13th chapter, the 13th chapter of the book of Numbers. I would have loved to read the entire chapter to you, but time will not permit me to. So if you pardon me, if you excuse me, I'll paraphrase it, um, the 13th chapter and a bit of the 14th chapter. Well, uh, the Lord, God, said to, God said to Moses to give Moses an instruction to send men to spy out the land of Canaan, the land of promise that he was giving to the children of Israel. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, you get another angle to it that makes you think that really this was, in a sense, God's permissive will. Uh, because while, while, when Moses is writing in the book of Deuteronomy, he actually says that the children of Israel asked him, uh, if they could go out and spy the land, that it was their own, uh, it was their push, their desire to go and spy the land. However it works out, whether they asked him or whether God said to them after they asked him. But the instruction was to go and spy out the land. And so Moses chose people to go and spy out the land. And the Bible lists all the people he chose, 12 of them, to go and spy out the land and to go and bring information from the land, to go and see what kind of land it was, um, whether it would be conducive uh, for them to live and, and to find out information as to who, uh, who was in the land, what kind of tribes were there, I guess, so that they could gather this information and prepare themselves to take over the land. Twelve people were sent out. Amongst them was a, a young man called Joshua and a young man called Caleb amongst the twelve. So they went out and spied the land on this their recommission. Um, and they were there for 40 days 
uh, in the land, gathering information, uh, I guess taking notes, observing things. Uh, um, uh, and then on their way back, they actually brought some of the produce of the land as evidence as, as to how the land was exactly what God had said, a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They brought evidence of it. Apparently, the grapes were so large uh, that they, they had to carry them on poles between themselves. Um, they brought this back uh, to Moses and the rest of Israel. When they arrived, they testified to Moses and the rest of Israel that the land was exactly as God had said. It really was a land flowing with milk and honey. However, they said there was a challenge. The challenge was that in their, from their observations, the people who dwelt in the land were strong, the cities were fortified and very large, and then to top it all, they saw what they called the descendants of Enoch there. Um, they, they, these were like giants that existed in the land. And then they listed all the hostile tribes that were in the land. As they said this, of course, you can imagine the people became frightened and demoralized. But then Caleb spoke up and Caleb said to them, no, Let's go in and take possession, for we can overcome. We are able to overcome. But then the men who went with him said to Caleb, you don't really understand what we're saying. We cannot overcome. They are stronger than us. And so the Bible says they gave a bad report of the land to the children of Israel. They said that it devours its inhabitants. The people who are in it are men of great stature. The giants exist there. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. That was their report that it is such a terrifying place. True, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but you don't understand how terrifying that land is. The land eats up people. The people there are giants, men of great stature. If we go in there, we are finished. In fact, it is so bad that we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and in their sight, we were like grasshoppers to them. That was the report they brought. And then, of course, when the people heard the report, they were overcome with grief. The Bible says the people wept that night, literally all night. They were crying, what has become of us? And they complained, they cried, they, they said maybe we should have been left in Egypt, maybe we should have died in the wilderness, why has God done this to us? And then they decided, you know what, let's select a leader and let's go back to Egypt. Can you imagine that? But of course, um, Aaron and her knew this was going to annoy God. They, they fell on their faces, they appealed to God. Uh, that God shouldn't judge them, destroy them. God said he had heard their appeal, but that these people who had rebelled against him would definitely not go into that promised land. And the truth is that they died in that wilderness by a plague with their, every single one of them and the people who believed their report, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, 
who believed, chose to believe the Lord's report. Paraphrase of the story. You can read the entire story in Genesis, the 13th chapter, about this recce mission that went bad. But we want to get some life lessons. That's been our journey. What life lessons can we learn from the journey of the children of Israel that can serve us in good stead as we press into God's promises for our lives? Lesson number one. Knowledge is good and necessary, but where it contradicts the knowledge of God, where it contradicts the word of God, we must choose to submit to the knowledge of God and to the word of God. When Moses sent them out in Numbers, the 13th chapter, verses 17 to 21, he sent them out on God's instruction, which God had given him in the first two verses of that chapter. When he sent them out, this was his instruction to them. Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage. And, and, and I suspect he knew that what they would see had the potential to terrify them. And so in the midst of the instruction was a word of encouragement. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe, ripe grapes. Life lesson. Knowledge matters. Knowledge helps us make the right choices. Knowledge informs even how we pray. It is good to gather knowledge. Not to gather knowledge sometimes is very irresponsible. And sometimes we expect God to be a magician, and God chooses not to be a magician. You want to go into an industry to set up a business, gather knowledge. You want to sit an exam, get knowledge. You, you're going for an interview, please do get knowledge so that you don't sound like a fool at the interview. Knowledge is important. You know, we go to do medical tests and we, we examine ourselves medically, periodically, because knowledge helps. We want information, but when we get the knowledge, where that knowledge contradicts the knowledge of God or the Word of God, we must make a choice. And the choice is whether we submit to the knowledge that contradicts the Word of God or whether We've received the knowledge, but then we go to a higher knowledge, the Word of God, the knowledge of God, and we stand on those against anything that is knowledge that contradicts the Word of God. For the truth is that without knowledge, people will perish. The, the prophet Hosea is very clear about that. So we get knowledge but we always ensure that that knowledge is submitted to the knowledge we have of God, the knowledge we get from the Word of God. And where there's a contradiction, we choose, we make a choice to obey, believe the knowledge of God. That's what the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, the 4th and the 5th verse. 
For the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Yes, sometimes the knowledge comes, and the knowledge has a purpose. It is being driven from the pits of hell. It wants to create a stronghold in our minds. It wants to cast down arguments. It, it wants to raise arguments and, and be a high thing, exalting itself against the knowledge of God. At that point in time, we must choose the knowledge of God. That must be our stronghold, not the stronghold of the knowledge that has come into our mind, which the enemy seeks to manipulate. And when the knowledge starts to breed thoughts, starts to give birth to thoughts. If those thoughts don't align with the Word of God, we must hunt them down in our minds and take them captive. Lesson number two. Don't ever let there be a nevertheless after God's Word in your life. What do I mean by that? Numbers, the 13th chapter, verses 27 to 29. This was their testimony. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. So by their own testimony, they confirmed that what God had told them was true. And by their own hands, they presented to Moses and the rest of the nation of Israel the evidence that what God told them was true. It is truly, they said, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then they go on to utter this word that I never want you to utter in relation to the word of God. Nevertheless, they said, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the, by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. They confirmed God's word. It is true what God said, they said. He promised us, and it's exactly as he promised, uh, um, a land that is full, flowing with milk and honey, a good land. We brought the evidence of that, but then they uttered that word that I don't want you to ever utter in relation to the application of God's word to your life. They said, nevertheless. What did they mean? They meant in spite of that, despite the fact that we have the evidence, nonetheless, they were saying, however, they were saying, be that as it may, they were saying. All the same, they were saying. They were saying regardless of what God said. They were saying, God did say, but you haven't seen the challenges we saw ahead. What were they saying in effect? Without saying it in these words, that's really what they were saying. It is true what God said. But the challenges there are so complex, complicated, so difficult, that even though God said, 
God is not able to deal with this one and take us in there. Listen to the way they said it. They said, have you seen the tribes that exist there? The Amalekites dwell in the land, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites in the mountains, the Canaanites by the sea. Do you know how complex it is? Every time we say the word of God and then we say nevertheless, however, then we are saying, we are saying the word of God does not have the power to do what God says it will do. Lesson number three. In our journey into God's promises, our primary responsibility, the one thing that we should be focused on is to believe the word of God. That was their challenge. God had expressly spoken to them. Moses had told them what God said. It was the promise of God, the word of God. But when they encountered difficulties, challenges, complexities, sometimes in our lives when there's a delay, and we think it's a delay, but we don't know that it's working according to the timing of heaven. Doubt attacks our heart, and eventually the belief in our heart starts to first shake, and then it starts to crumble. Your responsibility and mine is to be like Caleb and Joshua. If the Lord said it, then we believe it. For of course we know that he's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? So they allowed doubt to cause the rock of belief in their lives to crumble, but not Caleb. Listen to what Caleb says in verse 30 of Numbers 13. The Bible says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And you know, a lot of times we have to do that. Sometimes it's not the people we are, we, are, we are asking to be quiet or we are quieting, if I may borrow that phrase. Sometimes it is the voices that we are hearing in our heads. We need to tell those voices to shush. We need to tell those voices to shut up, keep quiet. Because those voices try, try to drown out the voice of God, the word of God that we have heard, the promises that God has made to us. So Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. We must believe the word of God. What was Jehoshaphat's encouragement to, the tri to, to Judah when those armies came against him? And he had prayed to God, got confirmation from God that God was going to do what God did. Hear him in Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter and the 20th verse. Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Believing God's word opens doors to realms of possibility or possibilities as we journey into God's promise. Didn't Jesus say in Mark, the ninth chapter and the 23rd verse, as he spoke to the man who had come to him out of love for his child, who was tormented by the devil, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. That's an awesome statement. If you can believe, all things are possible 
to him who believes. It's our responsibility. That's our number one priority. We just simply have to believe what God has said. And of course, I expect that someone out there will be saying, okay, practically, how can I get to that point where I believe? There are two things that work together to cause us to believe what God has said. Number one, of course, is what God has said, the Word, His promises, the Word of God, the Bible. Number two, of course, is the Spirit of God. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. You see, the whole world wants quick fixes. There's no quick fix with getting to the point where we hold on to the Word irrespective of circumstances, where we believe in a way that moves mountains, where we hold on to the Word until the Word brings to pass what God has said. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a result of application, of diligence, of study, of meditation, of confession of the Word. And then the Spirit of God breathes upon what you have read, what you have studied, what you have meditated on, and the Spirit of God breathes upon it. And what are mere words, what the Bible calls the Logos, the written Word of God, what are words that are written suddenly comes to life when this combustion takes place between Spirit and Word, and suddenly you get up from your knees from that place of prayer, and you know that the heaven and earth will pass away first before what God has promised to you doesn't come to pass. Suddenly you're seized with a combustion. The same kind of combustion that took place in the heart of our, the patriarch of our faith, the father of our faith, Abraham, as he journeyed towards that mountain and said to the servants, wait here. This my boy and I are going up there to sacrifice to the Lord and we will come back to you. The combustion that took place in his heart told him that even though God says I should sacrifice this boy, I will sacrifice him. But because God has spoken concerning him and declared that he's the promise, he's the promised son, he's the promised child, then even if I kill him, because the word of God cannot fail, then even if I kill him, I cut off his head, his head separates from his body, then I'm ready to see a miracle where God joins a severed head with a body because this promise of God that is on this boy must come to pass. When that combustion takes place in your heart, you are no longer natural. You are now walking in the supernatural. It doesn't matter what the circumstances say, you will believe the word. It doesn't matter what others say, you will believe the word. But it comes from a place of reading, studying, meditation, confessing the word, and asking the Spirit of God to breathe upon that word until it seizes your heart and defines your life. Lesson number four. There will always be bad reports and bad reporters. So lesson number four, don't listen to the bad reporters and their bad reports. There will always be. Sometimes they are close to you. Sometimes they are sadly members of your family. Sometimes they actually mean well. It's your welfare that they're after, but they're after your welfare from a natural perspective, from their, as a result of their own deduction, their own senses. A bad report is anything that contradicts what God has said. Listen to the bad report, verses 31 and 33, Numbers 13. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. 
And the Bible says they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. We actually saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so were we in their sight. They brought a bad report. It contradicted what God had said. And it doesn't matter whether it is factual. As long as it is contradicting what God has said, it is a bad report. And sometimes you have to put outside your sphere, put away from your life, especially when you're holding on, believing those who won't help your belief, but, uh, but on the contrary, will cause the faith you're trying to build to drain out of you. There are bad reporters, and there are bad reports you must keep away from yourself. Lesson number five. The enemy will subtly employ facts and add lies to those facts to weaken the believer. You see, the, the enemy is shrewd and scheming. He mixes these things. If it's 100% lies, most of us will see it a mile away. So he adds a bit of truth, adds some facts. But the critical element that makes the difference will be the lies that he adds to it. It's his nature to lie. Jesus says in John the 8th chapter and the 44th verse, says you are, you, you are of your father. Of course, that has nothing to do with you. You're not. But the people he was talking to. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Now listen to Jesus' description of the character of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Anything he tells you is a lie. He is incapable of telling you anything that is truthful. Don't even try to figure out whether it is. It is a lie. You're, sitting, you're, 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 you're suddenly, you feel an impression to, to, to do something to help someone. Maybe give them a financial gift. Someone who's down and out. Or maybe you're sitting in a church when we were together or you're at home and you hear a call for something or the other. You feel an impression to give. Then you hear a voice that says you shouldn't give. It cannot be God because what you're sowing is going to help a brother or sister. is going to change someone's life. Perchance it's going to go all the way 6,000 miles away and touch a poor family. It's going to make a material difference to the kingdom of God, the work of God. And suddenly you hear a voice. He's, he's a liar. He is telling a lie. And he will bring some facts so that his lies are easily acceptable. He says, Jesus goes on to say, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
And look at the way he subtly tried to and succeeded in derailing 12, 10 of the 12 that went. He said to them, the people are stronger than you. Now that was a fact. It was true. The people were stronger. They were giants in the land. Physically, they were stronger. They were hostile tribes. The tribes were too many, and together they were stronger. It was a fact. The only reason the nation of Israel defeated the tribes was because God was fighting for them. But take God out of it, the people were stronger. He presented a fact. It was true. But then quickly he attached to the fact a lie. And the lie was, you're not able to go up against them. That was a lie. Because God had already brought them through battles. People who were stronger than them. But because God was fighting for them, they were able to go up against them. So he put the truth, the fact, and quickly put in a lie. And that's how he works. You must learn to discern when he's working. Because he only speaks lies. Listen to what he said. There's another thing he said. It was a fact that they had gone through the land. That was true. Remember, they said, we've gone through the land. But then it was a lie that the land devours its inhabitants. How did they know that? But the enemy had planted it in their minds. As we go into God's promises, the biggest battle we fight is the battle of our minds, where he's trying to sow thoughts and into your minds. But when you have the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, then you can go to battle against him in your mind. Remember, Jesus taught us that, that it's the word in you that allows you to combat the lies of the enemy. Lesson number six. Who you think you are will affect whether you believe God's promises or not. Fundamental. The people who didn't believe said, we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. What were they saying? We know we are grasshoppers. We have a grasshopper mentality. That's who we are. We are not men of stature. We are not bold. We are not brave. We are not courageous. We are grasshoppers. Somebody is going to step upon us and squash us. We can't really make a difference. That was their mindset. Your mindset is what will bring victory in the battles of life. Their mindset was that we are, we are grasshoppers. And you know, once you have a mindset like that, not only will you agree within yourself that that's who you are, you will be convinced that other people see you as who you see yourself. I want to say to someone that you are not defined by life circumstances. You're not defined by the words of others. You're not defined by what you have been through in the past. You're definitely not defined by your mistakes. You are defined by who God says you are. And in case you didn't know, there are many things God says about you. You need to spend time and meditate on what God says about you so that it defines who you think you are because that is going to affect how you believe the promises God has made. Let me just say to you 
this morning that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't let anybody tell you anything to the contrary. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says you are the apple of his eyes. He might not think, the, that guy, that you're the apple of, of his eyes. She might not think you're the apple of of his eyes. You might have come from a family where rather than being told that, 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 that that's who you are, you are special, people cut you down with their, their tongues. A parent, instead of loving you, cuts you down all the time. That might be your testimony, but you can put all that aside because what the parents said, what the friends said, what they said on, on, on social media about you, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what does God say, and God says you are the apple of his eyes. God says you have overcome the world because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It sometimes feels like the world has overcome you. You need to wake up in the morning and declare that because God says you have overcome the world, then you have overcome the world. All this pressure, you must recede because God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one to whom all power belongs, says you have overcome the world. He says you are the beloved of the Lord. Sometimes you go through a relationship and you come out of the re relationship, you are so bruised and battered, you have been rejected, you have been treated in a terrible way, you have been abused, even sometimes physically and sometimes psychologically. You are so wounded, so battered, you don't feel good about yourself. You've been told so many times that you won't amount to anything, that you are nothing. The circumstances seem to have conspired with what you were told to drive home the message that you're nothing. Well, put that aside. This morning, Put that aside because the word of God, the truth, the word of God says that you are the beloved of the Lord. If you are the beloved of the Lord, then you don't need any other person because your identity is not in that person but is in God. You are the beloved of the Lord. You are in Christ Jesus, so there's no, con no, more, no, no more condemnation for you. Absolutely. Yes, I did it. Yes, I committed it. Yes, I did all those things. Yes, I know I made mistakes. Yes, there are terrible things I've never shared with anybody. The enemy comes to bring condemnation, but suddenly you realize, no, 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 that's a lie. Because the truth, the word, the promise of God, what he says about me is that because I am in Christ Jesus, and I am in Christ Jesus, there's therefore no condemnation for me. You are free because Christ has set you free. You don't have to live in that addiction. You don't have to be trapped by those things. You don't have to go back to your vomit. There is enough power that has been released to set you free. And not just to set you free, for you to establish your freedom because the word of God says concerning you, you are free because Christ has set you free. And do you know that you, you are the redeemed of the Lord and he has redeemed you from trouble? You have been redeemed from the curse of the law. It's, it's, it's what they did in the past, but God forbid that what they did should set your teeth on edge, that they ate sour grapes and you are suffering for it. No, the Bible says that you have been redeemed from the curse of the law. And I could go on and on and on, but let me just end by saying you are God's chosen one. Hallelujah. And lesson number seven as we come to an end. Lesson number seven. There are always consequences when we don't believe God's word and we believe Satan's lies. Three consequences, very quickly. Number one, the result of not believing God's word and believing Satan's lies is 
he will bring anxiety, worry, and stress. It's the word of God that gives the peace of God that passes all understanding. But if you, if you don't believe that word, and if you allow Satan to sow a lie, and allow the lie to take root, then you can rest assured anxiety, worry, and stress is what will follow. Numbers 14 verses 1 to 3. So the congregation lifted up their voices, this is after they heard the bad report, and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our, lives, our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? The whole night, chaos, weeping, crying, suffering, worry, anxiety, stress. And you and I know that they were stressing for nothing because what God had promised would come to pass. May God deliver anyone who is under the canopy of anxiety, stress, or worry from stress or worry. May you enter the peace of God. Strive to enter the peace of God. Number two, consequences. You will always be tempted to take matters into your own hands if you believe Satan's lies and you don't believe the word of God and you will act against God's will. You will take matters into your own hands. Listen to the solution they had. I mean, you just have to, you just have to marvel at the children of Israel. And we would until we realize that sometimes we are very much like them. This was their solution to the, to the problem. Verse 4, Numbers 14, verse 4. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. What a solution. Let us go back to where we have been in bondage for 430 years. Let us go back to being second-class citizens. You would think it was easier to just believe what God is saying. But the moment you choose not to believe, the moment you allow Satan's lies, invariably you will make a daft decision with consequences. Number three, not believing God, believing the lies of Satan, will attract God's judgment. Now, it's not that God is judging. It is that there's cause and effect. So God doesn't have to come and say, I judge. The consequence of that kind of disobedience comes as a result of that disobedience. When we choose not to believe, there are consequences. And those consequences are, the way I put them is that it's God's judgment that is already, that is intertwined with the word. In the same way that there is a blessing intertwined with every word, there is a judgment intertwined with the disobedience of the word. So look at what happened to the people. Verses 20, and 20, 20 to 23, Numbers 14. Then the Lord said, after Moses and Aaron had pleaded with him, he says, I've pardoned according to your word. I've, I've, I've heard you, pardon them. But truly as I leave, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men, because all these men who have seen my glory 
and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. It, it was the result of their actions. They, they, they had brought it upon themselves. You know, my prayer for you and I is that we will not forget what God has done. We have seen his glory. We have seen his deliverance. We have seen, we have seen his power. We have seen his protection. We have seen his provision. We have seen a demonstration of the compassion, the mercies of God. We have seen his forgiveness. As a result of what we have seen, we will not test him. We will not be disobedient. We will, not, we will, we will choose to believe his word and not to believe the lies of Satan. And you know the truth as I end is that obedience pays. Obedience pays. Inherent in the word, in the promise, is the blessing of obedience. Verse 24, he says about Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and you know, we have a different spirit in us. Let us just submit and yield to the spirit we have in us, and we will be like Caleb and Joshua. He has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it, the blessings of obedience. Now, it, it wasn't just coming upon Caleb. Because of Caleb's obedience, his descendants were blessed. His descendants were coming into the land. He says in verse 30, except for Caleb, he separates them from the twelve, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. He promised, he said to them, I will. Their actions had, had totally destroyed the plan. As we go into the promises of God, of course God allows us to go on recce missions. You know, and we have some recce missions. Sometimes you get a, a vision, a, a dream. Uh, God gives you an idea of the future. Uh, sometimes you hear a word where someone paints a picture of where you're going. Those are sort of recce missions. Let us not receive those things. Receive the word of God as we have done that paints a picture of your future. You are, you are destined to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. That is your future. His thoughts towards you are not thoughts of evil. At least you know what he's thinking. They are good thoughts. They are, they are, they are thoughts about your future, a hope-filled future, and to bring an expected end. That's a picture. Now, as you receive those, don't join those who will convert what is good news into a bad report. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. Father, help us. That's my prayer for us. Help us, you know. There's a scripture where the, the man said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And sometimes I find myself in that, state, in that place. What am I saying? Lord, I believe to this extent, but help me so that I believe even more. And that's my prayer for you, that God will help us to believe his word. That that beautiful combustion that takes place where word and spirit collide and suddenly a new person is birthed, that that will be your portion in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.
Father, just thank you for your word. Now, if there's anyone out there, this is where belief starts. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do you start that relationship? Because he's the only one who can help you. You start it by believing and then you confess what you believe. So you believe that he's the son of God. You believe that he died on the cross for you. And then you confess that belief. In doing that, you accept him as your Lord and Savior. So I would love to pray with you as I come to an end. You want to accept him as Lord and Savior. If you would just say this prayer with me. As you open up your heart. Lord Jesus, I receive you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I thank you for dying on the cross for me. Today, I commit my life to you. I commit to turning away from anything that is displeasing to you. Give me the grace to do so as I submit my life to obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See, you believed in your heart. You've confessed with your mouth. Your confession is settled. You are now a child of God. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, you can now start the journey um, into God's promises. God bless you. God bless you. Next week, um, we will be talking about killing the giants. I'm going to show you uh, a, a strategy uh, from the life of the greatest giant killer you've ever you've ever known. Um, all the giants in your life that are trying to stop you from entering God's promises, they must die. And next week you want to find out how you're going to kill the giants. God bless you.